is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show. And that's love stories, death stories, war stories, stories about our history and our nation's history, stories about sports, the arts, you name it. And we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country, and mostly, almost uniformly, with honor and with dignity. And today we're joined by a local. His book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana. And by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans. So we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching the body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact that it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun French and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking. Game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields, but his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again and then hear your response. I was always the new student. The outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups. I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and, and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools, and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, a very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. 
Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the core, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me. And uh, that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible. And that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement, as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of rock. All these difficult things they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that hill. And that's carried me through. And I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt. And some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx. And he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps. And you know when Fred's saying that, right? that he means it. It's not just a a platitude. Let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, Talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with VC, ambushes, and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments, and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleep in two hours, then on watch. And then all day, you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night, you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food, you're losing weight, you're tired all the time, you're worn down, and when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment, you're loaded down with it, you're exhausted, you're dirty all the time, It takes stamina, it takes endurance, and it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit. You've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have uh, sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden, uh, a terrifying moment, the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head. And it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, Oh my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close. Or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I, I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apartment, at our apartment. And he came over, we had coffee, and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit. He asked me if I would volunteer to go undercover. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. So I said, yeah. And he said, well, don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters. That started my 10-year undercover career, you know, six years with the Baton Rouge PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence. And my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups. And therefore, my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so uh, usually uh, I'd get home maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out. And that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, 
she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yeah, and I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the, in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here you get none of these what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf in a, in a sense. You've got maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report. Some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife, and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Uh, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we – You know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. And I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. What are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. And then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. When I saw them and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden... I whispered, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys, and she just kept, I mean. She knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct Instinct. and fear, Yeah, which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid or or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up and just move. Right, like when the the, uh, drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back. And he pointed to him. We were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it, that home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, 
Charlie will be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer and I was head back inside and she came inside and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there. was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me and I jumped up and grabbed my gun and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to, you know, defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her too. So I'm looking all over and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, "Lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me." And I go out and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, "I'll be back in a moment." I get in my car and I, I go all over for fifteen, twenty minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, "Look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right." I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Ural. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? What all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq, when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read. And more with Charlie and his stories, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and The Toll of a Double Life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin buy bust of four ounces of heroin. 
So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent. And the drug dealer had told, the heroin dealer had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road. Drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road. And when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry. Don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time, you know. So it's like being on the moon, remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dittman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road, so Sarah and Jerry were really on their own, and it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving, and as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out, and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll, the heroin dealer produced the four ounces, and when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Detman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger, bam, bam. And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Detman, Jerry Detman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal, the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot 38 toward her partner. She ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Dedman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow, pow. Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment. And when they got down there, Jerry rode over flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, He's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down. She pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat, and about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. 
she took him into the emergency room. And the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here. And they put him on a table. And the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital. And the nurse left. And Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding. And as she was there after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah. Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes, it was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs. And she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on a tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him and said, Mr., Mr., would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner. And if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And this happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest. Because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this. Go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. He was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building. She double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep. And at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was. And the agent said, Sarah, I've been been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were, had blood all over them, a blouse with blood all over it, and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, 
the popular supplement Sunday papers award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home, and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what, the, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City, and they're well-known. And that's Mississippi. Right, Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well-known. But they happen to be talking with people in town, and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money, and all of a sudden— They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home, the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of uh, scam target and then call others come do it and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to to do things uh, and – that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies and they're operating over multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in Northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U S it had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered 
I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough, who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, but it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look, here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad, he'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Don't tell them something that bad when I heard about it. Oh, my God. But anyway, they so they spread <laughs> the story. They spread the story that I was uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that help dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't, oh, don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, we've already gotten rid of it, but there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind? How much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen, and so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning, I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box, and then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me, and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries, and I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they had stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they were wanting to unload. And they took me out in the country and showed them to me. And we took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals. And one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such and such, it was a relative of his, lives on that, that hill up there in that house. Uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it, but even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the, that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got, got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, car vets to um, tractor-trailer trucks. In fact, tractor-trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand-new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago 12 hours before and driven down. 
nice deal for $2,200. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't yeah. buy a used car from this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. From Whatever that. you do. Yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable. Because, Charlie, you ran every, every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly. You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I, I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors, and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships. But it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time. But they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take, it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in the prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And, and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force prosecutor, uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going till we got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases, and the state agent said, um, well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we worked. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to can, can to can. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one, from undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq, 
when the whole place was blowing up and he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places and he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Marriage on the Mind series with our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and she also serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, give us a call at 844-627-8255. Leave your message there, and she'll make sure to get back to you within 24 hours or you can write us at ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org and today's story is from a past episode Deb brought us with Justin and Jennifer Murph and they told her one story that we couldn't fit into that episode but we thought it was so powerful that you'd want to hear it for a little background Justin and Jennifer are a millennial couple and they're Christians and you'll hear them talk about their faith Let's take a listen to this additional story they shared with us and then get Deb's reaction afterwards. You know, Justin, uh, like he said, he traveled uh, previously 50, sometimes 60% of the year, depending on the travel season. And we were so excited to be pregnant with our third born. And one morning I woke up and I was bleeding. And we were right at our second trimester and I, I Skyped Justin because he was in Malta at the time. And I said, honey, I, I'm bleeding. And, um, and so I rushed to the church, drop off my kids. We had no family there. And I go to the hospital, and um, they send me home to lose a baby, to pass a baby at my house. Um, so, so literally, we, I'm, I'm halfway around the world on Skype. Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to get home, and I can't. Uh, and I'm, I'm having to watch... Um, as Jen loses our baby um, by Skype. Mm. And that was uh, January 26, 2014. Absolutely. And what's really cool about that story, we, um, of course, you know, people don't talk about um, miscarriage. I think that because we don't value life, they don't really talk about miscarriages. And it was physically painful. It was emotionally painful. Um, and, of course, my husband was across the world. And so we were both broken. And so we, we move on. We grieve. Um, we go to Rome. And when in Rome, of course, you, we end up pregnant. Every time we left the country, we had another baby, it seemed like. And um, 
we are scared. We're like, oh, my gosh, you know, what if we lose this baby? Um, how are we, you know, what's going to happen? Well, and the doctor, so, the, the OBGYN was, was actually upset because Jen had a very thin uterus already, and so she's pregnant. The doctor actually tells her, um, you need to consider other options. And we're like, what do you mean, other options? Well, you're... She didn't use the word abortion, but she did say, you, you may want to consider other options. Um, because, you know, it, it looks like you're going into placenta previa. It looks like you won't be able to keep the baby. Your uterus is too thin. I don't feel confident that I can deliver this baby safely. And so you should consider other options. And for us, we're like, that's not an option. Um, we need to get a second opinion. And so she actually, the doctor, uh, actually discontinued care uh, of Jen and sent us to the specialist at the main hospital. And the ultrasound was about an hour long, internal, external. And the doctor was like, what do you guys do? Who are you, you know, where do you work? And so we told her, and she started laughing. She goes, well, maybe you guys will think this is a miracle. I don't know. Last week, the placenta was down low. It looked like it was attaching to the uterine wall. This week, it's at the top of the uterus. It's healthy. It's not attached. Your uterus is thin, probably about as thin as a piece of newspaper. But the integrity looks strong. So as long as you don't go bungee jumping or horseback riding or mountain biking, you should be okay. But you're probably going to have to deliver early. So we were, we were, honestly, we were so thankful, like, great, okay, fourth child, everything is good. We thought it was disaster, and we thought, you know, we were certainly in peril, but we're out of the woods. But what, what God honestly did next totally blew us away. So I'm at the hospital, and, and I'm just doing a regular checkup. They're like, well, you know, because you've been high risk in the past, we're going to go ahead and schedule your C-section. This was my fourth C-section, and plus it was high risk. And I said, okay. And so the nurse comes back, and she goes, "We um, here's the date and the time. And I start weeping. I mean, uncontrollably weeping. And they were kind of looking at each other like, what did we say? What did we do? And I was like, I lost a baby a year from the day to the hour that you're about to, that you're going to give, um, you know, have me give birth to this one. And so it is so amazing that even in the midst of loss, God is Redeemer, and he gave back what I thought was stolen from me. So that day that was a day of of sadness became a great day of joy a year later when uh, literally we gave birth to Madison, and she's our fourth daughter. And, yeah, we, we, we mourn the loss of the child that we will someday see, um, but uh, that day is no longer a day of dread and hardship. It really is a day of, of celebration because uh, we, we were able to see Madison come into this world. And she's, she's bless her heart, she's a mini-me. She looks just like me as a baby, um, but she's a girl. So bless her heart when she gets older, <laughs> as we say here in Texas. But, yeah, so that, that's been our journey. Um, but it, it was just it was amazing to see what God did. And when we come back, we're going to be joined, as always, by Deb Wolniak, Justin and Jennifer Murth. Murph sharing a beautiful and a difficult story. By the way, we tell these kinds of stories here on the show because they're real. And when people talk about their faith, we don't edit it out. We respect people of faith and we respect people who choose not to believe. It's a great country and great people choose both paths. When we come back, we're going to talk to Deb about such things as miscarriage, what it does to a marriage. I'm going to tell a personal story about a dear friend of mine and what it did to theirs. When we come back, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do and also to share your marriage stories. Or call 
844-627-8255. That's 844-627-8255. And again, leave your marriage stories and they can become a part of our American stories. More after these commercial messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak, to join us. And Deb, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. You bet. Now, Deb, you just heard the story about Justin and Jennifer's miscarriage. And, you know, we often talk on this show about crisis points and those points at which marriages can disintegrate or be tested or challenged. And I can think of really no fewer and bigger challenges and these things don't happen often but my goodness when they happen to a couple these are if you if you're having a problem in your marriage these can break them uh, talk about your experience especially with young couples and something like a, either a stillborn birth or a stillborn death that is or a miscarriage um these are tragedies or the loss of a child to an accident or to cancer talk about these things if you can well, and unfortunately, we all have either friends or relatives or people that we know that have gone through these traumas, and they're just very, very horrific. On the couple that experiences that stress, their chances of getting a divorce rise to 80%. Because of the significant level of stress, many times financial stress on top of that, a lot of questions. You're right. If you have uh, a rocky marriage before an event like this occurs. And believe me, in any marriage, you will have an earthquake event. Um, it's just a matter of time. For some, it's closer to the beginning of their marriage. Some, it's later. You just never know. And you would never, ever want to anticipate anything like that. But these unfortunate situations happen. And the loss of a child at any age is traumatic. In this case, this couple, very young, you know, younger married couple, millennials, trying to have uh, their third child lost that child and in that process really experienced some amazing things. First of all, the trauma. I cannot imagine um, having your husband on the other side of the world and then the husband being like, I want to be with you so desperately that, that he was willing to stay on Skype with her that whole time is just such a huge blessing to her. And I know she's mentioned that. But if he couldn't be there, that was the next best thing. But that they went through that trauma together, that they really heard each other in the emotions and the experience that they were going through, and both were traumatized. I think sometimes couples forget 
to sympathize with the father in this space as well. It's easy to say that for the mom because of the physical changes that she has to go through. But a lot of times we forget it's the couple and the dad that also experiences that same level of loss. It is a tragedy for a family to experience. So when couples go through that, um, I've even talked with some couples and said, you know, what were the common denominators that kind of started pulling you through that? And one of the things that they pulled through on was they were empathetic to the other person's feelings, the emotions they were going through. Those emotions are valid, and everybody's going to be going through grief and loss differently. And to be able to acknowledge that with the other person, that your grief may look different than my grief, but I'm going to hear it and respect it. And also the courage, this is the other piece, to not run away from the grief. Some people say they sit in the grief in order to fully experience and in order to fully grieve that loss and then eventually receive that healing. And for some people um, that are of faith, they receive that through, you know, a higher power. For those that are not of faith, they can, you know, go to other places, maybe of comfort, of other people or friends that are comforting, or even some of the activities that, you know, you may not want to do right away, but that when you get back into routine, you find some of that healing and some of that strength again that you can continue to grow. And again, we just have to use that word respect in this space because it is so uncertain and so new and and shocking sometimes. And so it takes a while for our spirit, our body, our, our soul to really recover from these things and those emotional traumas. And these are things that could, you know, even pop up years after that event. So really be patient with yourself. Um, for that couple um, that, you know, just shared, I'm so excited to hear that they had that really huge blessing of that baby the following year. Um, some people don't know this, but I work for the March of Dimes. And one of the things that they have found, they've encouraged some folks, if you have gone through a miscarriage, if you can wait up to 18 months before conceiving again, they strongly encourage that to lower the, the rate of premature birth. But in this case, how exciting that they were able to conceive and then have that child. And in many circles for the March of Dimes, many couples who've experienced that birth of after losing their that previous one call that second child the rainbow baby. Why? Because it's that promise of that new possibility, that new child coming in. It doesn't replace the previous child, not at all, but it's that continued hope and carrying on of the spirit of that family. And what a treasure that that child is to them. What a joy. Yeah, indeed. I, you know, I'm not sure if you ever saw it. It's a, sort of a segue, but the movie Ordinary People, which came out in 1980 and won an Oscar for just about everybody who was in it. Robert Redford directed it. Um, and if you, if you recall, uh, Deb, there was a mother and father that seemed perfectly happily married for 20-plus years. Donald Sutherland played the father. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore played the mother. They were an accomplished family, an affluent family. They had two beautiful boys. The boys went out on a sailing trip and one of them died and one lived. And one tried to save one of the brothers but couldn't. And that boy who lived, well, he ended up having really, really serious psychological problems and tried to kill himself. And that's where the movie starts. The boy comes home after having tried to kill himself. The mother and father who were living this perfect life now have to cope with not only the loss of one son, but the other trying to kill himself. And this was just an accident. It just spun into all these other things. And in the end, this really perfect marriage had some real cracks. 
And at the end of the marriage, you see Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore as far away from each other as almost any two human beings could possibly be. Mm. And uh, I got to tell you, and almost anybody I knew who saw the movie, it, it affected them. And they started to think about their relationships differently. Uh, just talk about those, you know, what, what families uh, can do at those moments. Um, because they, they, they ran to a psychiatrist, but they, it didn't seem like they were willing to share. Um, the mom in this particular movie wanted to just act like everything was fine. Everything right, right. was fine. And this right. ended up just killing everybody. Talk about that. I think there's always that person who may want to cover it up, not let the mm-hmm. neighborhood know that they have this problem, not share. I think that's yeah. a normal instinct. Let's just get on with things. Uh, talk yeah. about this if you can, Deb. Yeah, and it's hard because the coping mechanisms that we have as a result of trauma can do various things. At first I said, make sure you respect the space for grief. The second piece is how then do you manage? And everybody's going to manage a little bit differently, but we can discern what is a healthy coping mechanism, what is an unhealthy coping mechanism. For some, they may have gone through trauma even in their young age that really doesn't allow them to enter into that emotional piece and to really discern that. Yes, that is absolutely where you need professional help to be able to walk you through these spaces. And let's make sure people understand just because you seek professional help does not mean that you are weak, not at all. You are, look at that person as a coach, a trusted coach to walk you through the different phases of analyzing and understanding yourself in the midst of that trauma. You do not need to be the result of that trauma, but what you can do is look at this in a new way where um, you need to have critical care at a time where you are not functional. Absolutely. Does this bring on other things like clinical depression? It can, absolutely. And for us to deny that would really be a disservice for those that are really struggling with these honest, true emotions that they're feeling. Um, with a professional help, they can bring you through a process or even help you through some medication levels if that's needed. Maybe this is just one of those things where as you go through it, you learn to manage those emotions that could be with you for almost the rest of your life. I mean, let's just face it. Just because you go to somebody that's a professional doesn't mean you click and get better. It means that you work through this process to learn more about yourself and your relationship. Don't forget, as you work on yourself and you come to the point where you can come back together and work out those emotions together, please be patient with each other. Please seek to understand and continue to work on things that will affect your communication, where you need to plan maybe something new together, new traditions, which are hard to start sometimes, not too soon, but at some point when it's time, create that routine and those traditions again that can bring those pieces of joy back to you or even give back to a community. Sometimes people go through trauma and they learn more about themselves so that they too can turn and give back to an organization or community or start even their own nonprofit. We've seen that where we've carried on a legacy of somebody who's passed before us so that we could encourage others who may have not yet experienced that trauma. And that's a great way to find healing as you help others go through a similar experience that you did and that you're a survivor and that you can continue and you have a purpose on this planet. You have a purpose in your marriage and you two as a team need to remain united and keep working. Do not lose faith, even though things can seem dark, because 
God, if you're of faith, will pull you through. If you're not of faith, keep looking for that peace that's going to give you that hope and keep pulling together as a team. Do not let that go away. That would be the worst tragedy is if there was a loss and then you lost your marriage because that also is extremely traumatic. Yeah, that's just one so, more trauma on top of the other traumas and an even bigger trauma in the end. As always, Deb, thank you so much for joining us. Deb Wolniak on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib and more after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, but this one's unusual. It's the story of an abandoned boat, and it comes from our own Jesse Edwards. The slow, choppy waters erratically splash up against the obstruction, an offbeat rhythm banging into an island of rusted steel. As the Ohio River flows towards the Mississippi, its waters make their way through the American Midwest. Roughly 25 miles downstream from the Cincinnati, some of the water diverts into a gap on the southern shore into a creek and up against a ship that seems to have docked for the very last time. It's a vessel that fought in two world wars, served as a yacht, set the scene in a pop star's music video, carried one of the world's greatest minds, and shuttled tourists around the nation's largest city all before it found itself left to be forgotten by time and history in these murky waters. It's been over a century since the ship was originally launched in 1902. It's a vessel that's been known by many names. The most recent one, however, can still be found in the faded paint on its hull, the Circle Line 5. To understand why the Circle Line 5 is significant and just how the hell it ended up in a creek near Cincinnati, we need to start at the beginning in Wilmington, Delaware. On April 12, 1902, the ship was launched as the Celt, commissioned as a luxury yacht. She was 186 feet long and steam-powered. After changing owners, she was renamed the Sachem. When World War I broke out in 1914, German submarines known as U-boats patrolled the Atlantic, hoping to sink as many Allied shipments as possible. For the first time in modern warfare, the submarine played a key role. It was a deadly and effective weapon that could strike without any kind of warning and was nearly impossible to counter. As America prepared to join the war on the Allied side, the U.S. Navy realized that they needed to find new ways to counter the below-water threat, both in the war zone and at home. So the Navy began renting small, fast, private craft that could potentially outmaneuver and outspot enemy submarines. In July of 1917, the Navy acquired the Sachem and dubbed it the USS Sachem. The ship was outfitted with depth charges to sink submerged U-boats and machine guns to counteract torpedoes. New and creative ways to defend against them needed to be developed. So they turned to Thomas Edison. Edison was one of the world's most profound inventors and businessmen. He seemed to be the perfect guy to come up with a creative way to destroy submarines. But in order to do that, he needed a ship. So the Navy gave him the USS Satchel. Edison would use the vessel to conduct experiments around New York Harbor before eventually sailing it to Key West, Florida, and the Caribbean. Edison's relationship with the Navy was tumultuous. In a 1923 article, he told a newspaper reporter that the Navy pigeonholed every invention he offered. With the war ending in November 1918, so did Edison's funding. He returned to his other business ventures, and the Navy returned the Sachem to the owner they had been renting it from. 
As the post-World War I years went on, the Sachem changed hands a few times, eventually becoming a recreational fishing vessel under the command of Captain Jacob Jake Martin of Brooklyn, New York. Martin had taken advantage of the Great Depression when he purchased the Sachem in 1932. Luxurious yachts that had once been available only to the upper crust of society would now be purchased at ridiculously low prices. Like many captains at the time, Martin opened his recently purchased ship to anyone willing to pay $2 to board it. Some came to party, others came to catch fish to feed their families. From the NBC newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. The next day, America declared war on Japan. On December 11th, Germany and Italy declared war on America, to which the United States reciprocated. America's involvement in World War II had begun. Faced with an even greater U-boat threat than before, America was once again in need of ships that could guard the home front. The Navy rented the Sachem a second time, re-outfitted it with armaments, and christened it the USS Finnekite in July 1942. The Finnekite acted as a training and patrol vessel. Anti-submarine tactics had advanced drastically since Edison had been on board. By now, sonar was in practical use. During the day, the Finnekite would take on sailors training to use sonar equipment. By night, she patrolled Key West Harbor. Eventually, the ship was assigned to guarding Long Island Sound in New York, where she served out the rest of the war before being returned to Captain Martin and reverting to her original name of Satchel. Right before the war's end in the summer of 1945, several tourism cruise lines merged to form Circle Line Sightseeing Cruises in New York City. Anxious to add more boats to the new company, the Sachem was purchased from Captain Martin and became the flagship of a new Circle Line fleet. The Sachem was then renamed the Sightseer. Over the years, Circle Line and its vessels provided millions of visitors with tours around New York City. At some point, Sightseer came to be known as the Circle Line 5 and received the paint scheme that can be seen faded on the abandoned ship's hull today. Eventually, the Circle Line company's operation grew into a demand that the Circle Line 5 could no longer meet. Sometime in the early 1980s, with the ship having been in continued use for nearly eight decades, she was cut from the Circle Line fleet and left in an abandoned pier in New Jersey. Enter Robert Miller in 1986. A Cincinnati resident, Miller was looking to buy an old steam yacht and had come across the Circle Line 5 sitting idle in New York's Hudson River. The vessel owner at the time sold it to Miller for $7,500. Miller told the Kentucky Inquirer in 2011 that it took him 10 days to repair the boat and to get it seaworthy again. One day while working on the ship, a limousine pulled up to the dock. A representative of Madonna greeted him, asking to use the Circle Line 5 as a background element in one of the widely popular pop star's upcoming music videos. The ship ended up having a cameo role in the video for Madonna's single, Papa Don't Preach. Now the ship is clearly identifiable in one of the brief scenes from the video. If you can stomach just how bad of a song it is, can see for yourself on YouTube. On July 4th, 1986, President Ronald Reagan symbolically relit the torch of the Statue of Liberty at the iconic landmark's rededication ceremony. My fellow Americans, we're known around the world as a confident and a happy people. Tonight, there's much to celebrate and many blessings to be grateful for. So while it's good to talk about serious things, it's just as important 
and just as American, to have some fun. Now, let's have some fun. Let the celebration begin. The day was celebrated with musical performances and a massive fireworks display. Miller and his Circle Line 5 were there, loaded with party-goers enjoying the celebration. Not long after, Miller planned to bring the ship back to a plot of land he had purchased in northern Kentucky, just outside of Cincinnati. It would prove to be the ship's final voyage. Miller and a small group navigated the ship from New York City through the Great Lakes, down the Mississippi River, and onto the Ohio River. He turned the boat down a creek into a small tributary of the Ohio on his property. The vessel has sat in that spot ever since. The ship has been sitting here for so long. Vegetation is growing on its decks. The porthole glass has been busted and rusted out. Stairs that once led to a sightseeing deck now lead to nowhere. She sat abandoned and decaying in these murky waters for nearly 30 years. 110 years since the boat launched in Delaware, it came to a final resting place in a creek outside of Cincinnati. After countless passengers and two world wars, the ship itself has become a sight to behold. In itself is a ruin of the past, a symbol of history in a condition that doesn't seem fit for the story it left behind. After everything the Selt, Sachem, Fenikite, Sightseer, Circle Line 5 saw in its day, it's now something for us to see, to marvel at. A ruin of the past, hidden in a creek. And great job as always, Jesse, and want to see a picture of that of that boat if we can i'd love to see it and got a visual in my own head and i'm sure you do too and said again send us your stories and we take them from everywhere this one is just something jesse'd been thinking about we'd love to know what you're thinking about story of a boat the story of a song you name the kind of story we do it here on our american stories the sachem the finnickite the sachem again the circle line and of course the sightseer and then the circle line five that one ship's many lives, all told here on Our American Stories. American Stories, you're listening to Loretta Lynn, Van Leer Rose's The Record 2004, her comeback record, won a couple of Grammys. We love telling stories about music and musicians, and today Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, tells us the story of the man behind this record, one of the great musicians and producers in this country. Take it away. You're listening to Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. Sports arenas all around the world play this song to get the audience pumped up and ready for a show. And the man behind Seven Nation Army brings the same level of intensity to his daily life. Jack White is a Grammy Award-winning musician and record producer. He's credited with starting the 2000s garage rock revival with his band The White Stripes. Led several other successful bands like the Rockin' Tours, who you may know from their hit song Steady As She Goes, and has since had a successful solo career. 
He's produced albums with Loretta Lynn, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Conan O'Brien. Yes, that Conan O'Brien, the famous late-night host. He's actually a pretty good rockabilly musician. White is famously eccentric, holding a special place in his heart for the old way of doing things. He almost always wears a suit, records his music on tape, and his most recent album, Lazaretto, was the top-selling vinyl record since 1994. It may not seem like there's much competition in this category, but as the vinyl revival continues to build steam, White has shown himself ahead of the pack. Whether you know Jack White or not, you've heard his work, and whether you like him or not, there's something about his dedication to simplicity that's incredibly powerful. White grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in a giant Catholic family, the youngest of 10 children, and as good Catholics do, he worked as an altar boy and was accepted at a high school seminary. Not exactly the standard rock star story. And just Google a picture of White and try to imagine a priest. He looks more like a bad Johnny Depp impersonator. He ultimately decided against the priesthood, instead opting to attend Cass Technical High School. Why, you might ask? Well, it was because he bought a new amp and they wouldn't let him take it to seminary. During school, he began working as an apprentice upholster and formed a short-lived band with his upholstery instructor. They called themselves The Upholsters. Original, I know. They did one thing that you might call original, hiding 200 records in couches and chairs that they sold to the Detroit population. Only two have ever been found, and that's a lot of Detroit grandmas sitting on music history. Jack's time as an upholster did more than just teach him how to make furniture and rip punk riffs. It was a moment when I was an apprentice upholsterer. I was about 15, I think, 15 or 16, and there was a a mid-century modern couch, sort of like a Vladimir Kagan piece, I think. I know I had pink fabric with silver threads in it, and I, it was tempted in in the back. It was three staples in the back, just to keep it in place while the upholsterer was working on the front of it. And I just kept staring at this over and over again. I was cleaning up, sweeping up, and I went working on it, and I just kept staring at it. That's the minimum amount of staples to hold that piece of fabric down. That's, now we can call that upholstered. A table can only, it can have three legs and still stand, but two, it'll fall. So that sort of image has been burned into my brain. I think about that probably once a week, that image of that those three staples, and it's affected everything. I, I, I forced myself to do anything that I create artistically and music-wise, whatever it is, I, I force it through the funnel of that idea. I looked at it as a way of limiting myself so that I could create more things, create more songs, because I'm so boxed in, my brain is forced to work with the tools that are at hand. From that moment on, White's artistic life followed two principles. Number one. The number three. He calls himself Jack White the Third, owns Third Man Records, and toured under the name Three Quid in the UK. And of course, number two. A dedication to simplicity. Dan Rather of Access TV interviewed the famously private Jack White on this topic and so much more, delving deeper into White's insistence on simplicity and the older things. White's transition to the music business with the White Stripes relied heavily on this dedication to simplicity. For the longest time, I was determined to only use cheap and broken pawn shop type guitars, guitars made of plastic and cheap wood that were out of tune to make it the job harder on myself on stage instead of easier so that I'd have this wall to break through to get, some, to get somewhere better. You know? And if I could accomplish that on stage, if I could pull off a song with an auto-tune guitar, that's, then I know I was getting somewhere. 
you know. But a brand new amp, it always works every time. A brand new guitar, it always stays in tune. I mean, it's kind of, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, you know. I mean, I'm all about putting my own obstacles in front of myself. There were only two musicians in the White Stripes. His composition focused on driving and memorable riffs. His singing was less about performance and more about raw motion. Part of this focus on simplicity stems from his humble beginnings. I hate to label the generation now entitled, but it feels the sense of entitlement that's around nowadays seems to be something that kind of bugs me enough to want to try to overcome it. I don't see beauty in teenagers all sitting next to each other texting and not talking face to face, you know. I don't see, you know, that beauty in, in the way that pop music is all recorded on computer and auto-tuned and, and presented in that, in that really plastic way. I guess I just do my best to whatever I do to, to, try, to, to try to defeat those ideas and, and present it in, in, into something I think is at least an attempt at getting at truth and getting at beauty. White's most recent album even includes a song titled Entitlement which focuses on the importance of self-determination and hard work. And that's a lot coming from somebody who spent a long time working as an upholster. In a time when everybody feels entitled Why can't I feel entitled to Somebody took away my God-given right I guess God must have gave it to you Even with these self-imposed restrictions, the White Stripes became a massive success, catapulting White from a Detroit technical student to a household name. All this time, White continued to rely on the simplicity of his work and lifestyle. However, White's greatest source of simplicity was not himself. He relied heavily on someone else. Who knows where songs come from? You just have to sit there and I always feel like, you know, Michael Jackson said one time, you have to let God in the room. I think that's exactly true you have to sit there and relinquish all control i think people think when you write and you create you're the person in control and you're making all this happen as if you're you know some kind of magician or something but it's not really that you sit there and you become an antenna and you just let things happen through you and the more you let it happen the more you relinquish control the i think the more beautiful it is it becomes something that has almost nothing to do with you. And the songs, if people like the songs and they get played on the radio or sold at stores, it's almost like I, I, I had nothing to do with it. And I love that feeling. White's Catholic upbringing never quite left him. And even though he stopped attending Mass, his music continued to rely on his relationship with God. White believes that the spiritual nature of music involves getting closer and closer to God's creation. In your best moments creating music and being involved as that antenna to create music, your best moments, you're imitating creation from nothingness, which is only God can do. Only God can create the universe from nothing. And we're just creating from pre-existing materials. So if you build a house, or you're an architect or designer, you're building with wood and steel and plastic and all that, you're using pre-existing materials that were already here. Look what I did. I made this pyramid or I made the Empire State Building. Compared to God, it's like a big deal. So what, you know? But in music, you're creating from nothingness, but you're not really using any materials. You're just, you're making something exist that didn't exist before. And that's probably as close to God as you can get, I think. Even though White never attended seminary, he believes that he can have a similar impact with his music. Any calling in my head to, to preach on a pulpit or something like that comes out through what I can do on stage and present, present in that way. Because I don't, I'm not like an actor who joins a Broadway play and I follow a script and uh, there's a director there telling me how to do it and 
what we're all trying to accomplish, playing a part. I'm making it all up on my own, on stage, on the spot. I don't have a set list and I just, I do whatever comes naturally to me. So that's very much like a preacher who preaches from the hip at a Baptist church. It's, it's the power of the Holy Ghost that's involved in them, helping them connect with other people. And I think that's what I'm trying to aim for on stage is to try to get someplace so far away from me and, and connect with them in some way that makes sense. With his unique combination of intensity, simplicity, and a reliance on God for inspiration, White's career has been nothing but successful. And at the core of his work, he hopes to accomplish something incredibly important. What I'm aiming for is the truth, you know, because the blues is the truth to me. And the truth doesn't mean, you know, that that story happened to me and I'm telling you about it. You know, basically, you know, when they say in the, in the, the founding fathers said the pursuit of happiness, you know, they didn't say, you know, life, liberty and happiness. They said life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that's the same thing how I'm thinking about truth in music. It's the pursuit of the truth. I'm at least trying to get there. And maybe you might get something out of it, too, if you're listening to it and you can relate to it in your own way. But I'm not telling you anything about myself and saying, you know, don't make the mistake I made or do what I'm doing or anything like that. I'm just saying this is a story and this is a character and he's doing something or she's doing something. And we're trying to get to something truthful that makes sense. At the end of the day, like all good musicians, Jack White is a storyteller. In fact, one of his band's names is the Rockin' Tours, literally meaning the storytellers. And as his career continues to span different genres and icons of the industry, he's always told stories. White plans to continue his search for truth on and off the stage, always with his signature old world flair and driving guitar riffs. For Our American Stories, I'm Shadrach Straley. Great job as always, Shadrach, a Hillsdale intern doing professional work. Jack White's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.